Morning, everyone. Contrary to what you might have thought, we are continuing on in our study of the Book of Romans. And uh, we're in this particular portion in Romans 13, which, um, which really... Uh, it, it, it's, it's a portion that unless you really appreciate what it is that Paul's talking about, um, especially to Christians, you know, and he's dealing with Christians here, um, it, it, can, uh, it can at times, you know, well, you won't get the most out of it that you should. And, and I think Psalm 51 is a wonderful picture of a commentary of a repentant heart, a conscience that has been awakened by the deceitful, because of the deceitfulness of sin, but a conscience that is awake, one that is awake, and the blessing of an awoken conscience. And the title of the sermon this morning is simply, A Conscience Awoken. And we see it in Romans 13, if we turn there with me, have a look at Romans 13, we'll just read the last four verses of that chapter. Romans chapter 13 and those last four, verse 11. And that, knowing the time, that it is now, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk honestly in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no doubt of my need for you this morning. There is no doubt of all who are here, their need for you this morning. And I pray that you would speak to their hearts, their consciences would truly be woken, that an understanding, dear Lord, of our nature would be revealed to us and that we would desire in every part of our life to have an awoken conscience but also one that is clear, completely and perfectly clear. I pray, dear Father, be with us all this morning. And let this glorify your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. What's clear about this passage, and we're only going to be dealing with verse 11. What's clear about this is that Paul isn't writing to Christians who are physically asleep. Right? If he was writing to Christians who were physically asleep, they couldn't read what he was writing. You know, it just sort of can't happen. It doesn't work that way. But he's speaking there in that text, it is now high time to awake out of sleep. He's not also speaking about that Christian uh, sleep, that one that, is, that has died in Christ. We see that all Christians in the New Testament who have died in Christ sleep in Jesus, the Bible says. Well, he's clearly not referring to them either because no one who has died in Christ has an issue about making provision for the flesh and fulfilling the lust thereof. So clearly it's not referring to that sort of sleep either. But there is a form of unconsciousness that we often have, and that is a conscience that is asleep. 
a conscience that needs to be woken up, a conscience that needs to be alert, a conscience that needs to see itself for what it is. And the Bible references conscience in 30 different verses. All of them are in the New Testament. All of them are in the New Testament. Uh, Aside from the first three and the last three, all of them are referenced by the Apostle Paul. He speaks of it as a witness in Romans 2.15, 9.1, 2 Corinthians 1.12, Hebrews 13.18. He speaks of that which can be defiled or wounded in 1 Corinthians 8.7, 8.10, 8.12, Titus 1.15. That it can be weak in 1 Corinthians 8.12 or strong in 1 Corinthians 10.29. As that which can be seared or dulled an evil conscience he refers to as in 1 Timothy 4.2 and Hebrews 10.22. All these references are in your notes in the sermon, in, the, in your sermon notes, in your newsletters. He speaks about that which can be convicted or awakened in Romans 13.5 and 1 Corinthians 8.7, 27, 28 and 29. He speaks also of that which can be good and pure, in other words, clear, a completely clear conscience. In First Timothy one fifteen, one nineteen, three nine, Second Timothy one three. It seems evident to me that when Paul writes, "It is now high time to awake out of sleep," to me he is clearly referring to an awakened conscience. He goes on to speak of casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armour of light, turning away from ungodliness and making no provisions for the lusts of the the flesh thereof. And this can only be attended to when our sleeping conscience that ignores sin is woken up. It's the only time that that can happen. You can't put away those things unless you're aware that you're doing those things. You can't be aware of those things until your conscience is woken up and that's your choice. That's a decision that you will make. No person ignorant of their sin or willfully excusing their sin can ever otherwise attend to those things commanded in that passage, in that text. A sleeping conscience has no ability to recognise sin. The guilt of it is ignored, it's set aside, it's hidden or it's deflected to others. And the evidence of this is seen in David in the wonderful repentant psalm of Psalm 51 that we just heard this morning. But it was Jesus who probably gave... Jesus awakened more people in one time than we've seen in the Scriptures. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. You'd remember this account... Strangely, and it's an account that's actually removed from a lot of modern translations, which is quite startling. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. Remember when Jesus, it says in verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temp- into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Verse 3, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground 
as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. We see in this passage that none of those from the eldest to the youngest were able to cast a stone at the woman and it's and it's always a curiosity to see that it's the elder ones who recognize their sins more clearly than the younger ones younger people don't seem to recognize sin they don't seem to identify sin very readily elder people i guess have enough of them banked up that they realize that they are sinners before a holy god but the young do not The young do not, so they are usually the last ones and we don't know what their motivation was in dropping that stone. Romans 13, 11. And that knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. So we're going to be seeing in the first points of this sermon that the sleeping conscience will inevitably destroy your life. Let me say that again for those who haven't heard or that might not be listening clearly. A sleeping conscience will eventually destroy your life. And we're going to be seeing that in some of these. You need to do everything in your power, everything in your power to keep your conscience clear, to deal with it and to clear it. And it's not hard to do, but there's a key that you need. There's a key, just one simple key. And it's a key called humility. And that key unlocks a life that is blessed. First point this morning. That was just by way of introduction. So first point this morning. A conscience asleep to sin. In 1983, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Only minutes before landing in Madrid, investigators studying the accident made a frightening discovery that proved pilot error. The black box of the cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before the impact, a computer-synthesised voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. The pilot, Tulio Hernandez, ignored the warning, saying, bueno, bueno, okay, okay. Then, frustrated by the warnings, he snapped, shut up, shut up, gringo, and turned off the warning system as well as the autopilot. Minutes later, the plane ploughed into the side of a mountain. 181 people died and only 11 survivors. It was noted as the second deadliest aviation accident in the history of uh, landing on Spain's territory. It's not the first time I've told that story, but it's a great illustration. It's a great illustration as to how the conscience works together with how our foolish hearts proud hearts respond and ending in the saddest and most common tragedy and that is a life that is destroyed the puritan richard sibbs writing a definition of the conscience in the 17th century said the conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself the soul reflecting upon itself in his book rediscovering holiness in 1992 j.i packer wrote that the soul's automatic warning system he spoke about the soul's automatic warning system and he says 
An educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do. It forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, makes us feel guilt, shame and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserved when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. He goes on and says, Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitise and, if possible, kill our consciences. He says the relativism, materialism, narcissism, secularism and hedonism of today's Western world help him mightily towards his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weakness have been taken into the contemporary church. That last statement is an important one. It's a very important one. It's a last statement that needs to be double underlined because there is no church without its carnal Christians. There is no church without its carnal Christians. And these are those Christians who are Christian in name but carnal in desire. How many Christians in this church fit this description? That's a question you need to ask yourself. How many Christians in this church fit this description? How many of you are ignoring your conscience? Carnal Christians ignore their sin. They justify their reprobate hearts and they blame everyone else for the problems that they have. A conscience that is asleep to sin is self-destructive. It doesn't affect anybody. Well, it can affect other people's lives, but generally it is self-destructive and it will claim its victim in the end, one way or another. In his book, The Vanishing Conscience, John MacArthur Jr. wrote of what next, what happens next. He says, when we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of, and listen to this, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. When we follow our conscience, it commends us, bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, well-being, and gladness. We have a world that is hell-bent on removing from you the guilt of your sin. They've got to repackage it. They've got to get you into some sort of a trance-like state so they'll, they'll invent music and everything like that so you can suddenly feel good about yourself. You can wallow in this wonderful feeling of euphoria so your guilt can somehow be set aside back into some cupboard, dark corner somewhere that you won't bring it out to the surface and deal with it. The problem is, though, that that guilt works through the conscience to actually work other work within your life. You find yourself becoming depressed and filled with anxiety and filled with fears and then it manifests itself in how you're actually dealing with other people. You start blaming everybody else for your own problems. The decisions that you make is somebody else's fault. We're seeing this time and time again today and we're living in a day where everybody excuses their own sin. Nobody wants to take responsibility for themselves. Nobody. From the people who run the country and run the state all the way down to the carnal Christian in church. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 every single month and we read about the danger of an unexamined conscience. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 30, it says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 
For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. But this is, and I, and I expanded on this, the last communion. Verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now we're happy to ignore this. But there are many people who go through illness within their lives, not recognising that that has something to do with a, with a wounded conscience. Now the sleep Paul's refer to, Paul refers to here is death. But let's also remember that the wages of sin is death. So it applies to us all, especially if we continue to allow sin to fester, unexamined and unrepented of because of a sleeping conscience. A conscience that is asleep to sin is the most self-destructive thing in our lives. It was this that Jesus came to rescue us from. It was this that Jesus came to rescue us from. You know, that's what Christ came. The thing is, you can't repent of your own... You can't, you can't be saved. You can't be saved until you see yourself wretched before Christ and in need of a saviour. Far too many people think that ascending to the, ascending to the Christian idea, some sort of Christian code of ethics, is, is right. They think that going from atheism to, yeah, yeah, I reckon that's what happened. Yeah, I reckon Jesus died for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that that's true. Yeah, so I'm saved. But the Bible also speaks about pressing into the kingdom of God. There's going to be times where you're not necessarily going to be saved simply because you've made a profession with your mouth. You will be saved when you humble yourself before a holy God. You fall upon your knees before him and say, Lord, save me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. When that heart then is transformed, you don't have to put on the years and graces. You are transformed from the inside out. You are changed. You are a new creature in Christ. And it testifies to the wonder and the glory of God. It's an amazing thing. And it all begins with the key. And the key is humility. The key is humility. Next point this morning is a conscience excusing the darkness. And we see that there in verse 12 where he says, The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Paul here speaks of an active and conscious effort to cast off the works of darkness. Who's he speaking to? Atheists? He's speaking to non-believers? Speaking to people outside the church? No, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to people within the church. We often get this idea that just because you go to church and everything like that, you're all good, everything's all good, all holy. There are a lot of people who are the perfect hypocrite. They are not themselves on Sundays. We think that simply by going to church, we're doing the right thing. We think that simply by, you know, um, making sure that all the appearances that we have on the outside, we're ticking boxes and we're all good. But, you know, you're not going to be judged by the person that you sit next to. Your heart has to be pure. Your, your conscience has to be clear before God as well as man. We'll talk about that shortly. But too many of them, too many of them want to excuse the works of darkness within their lives rather than cast it off. They want to remain asleep. 
The radio cries out saying, pull up, pull up, but we reach over and shut it off. As if our lives will have a safer journey without the conscience. Far too many are still crashing into mountainsides. Remember that just because the conscience is asleep doesn't mean it's no longer there. A sleeping conscience secretes guilt all the time and it will eventually destroy your life until you wake up to the conscience and you seek to clear it. But is that you? Do you want a clear conscience? Are you willing to have a clear conscience? Because that's where it all begins, beloved. It begins with a complete desire to clear your conscience completely. Because it still doesn't work. It still affects your life if you don't. And I am. I'm, I'm talking to you personally. I, I know there's a lot of people that, that, you know, you're going to hear this sermon this morning. You're going to feel really, really strongly that I'm addressing this message to you directly, personally. I just want you to know with absolute certainty that I've got no intention of excluding anyone from this sermon. This sermon provides an equal opportunity for every conscience to wake up. If we act as if sin doesn't matter and we ignore it, hoping that it would go away, we fail to recognise that it never does. It never does. Dr Carl Menninger, who was not a Christian but was, well, was a well-known psychiatrist of the 1960s. He wrote in the introduction to his book um, in 1973 titled Whatever Became of Sin, he wrote this. Wrong things are being done, we know. Tears are being sown in the wheat field at night, but no one is responsible. No one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed any sins? Has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it, he says. We see in that quotation and we acknowledge some of the consequences of sin and we've seen that recognised also in J.I. Packer's quote and in MacArthur's quote earlier. But do we realise, do we really realise and understand that we're living in a time where so-called mental illness has gone through the roof and that happens to line perfectly with a world that has abandoned the word of God, abandoned moral absolutes. It's abandoned anything and everything that would hold them and keep them on a steady course. Why is mental illness, so-called, gone through the roof? But now we've got to call it mental illness, don't we? We need to call it that. We need to... We recognise that depression, anxiety and all this fear and everything like that goes through the roof. We don't want to associate that with unchecked sin. We don't want to associate that, so we'll call it a name. We, we put labels on them to, again, push our responsibility for our own sin just one more level away. That's what we do when we put a label on it. There's new forms of disease today. They're coming up all the time and they're used to bury our conscience deeper and deeper. That's all they're used for. We excuse the darkness through a label that we are suffering from rather than identify what it was that originated the so-called malady in the first place. Drunkens and drug addicts seek treatment for chemical dependency. Disobedient children today are sufferers of attention deficit disorder. Gluttons suffer with an eating 
disorder. Those who won't give up pornography are referred to simply as suffering sexual addiction. So much so have we determined to excuse the darkness that they formalise the entire thing in a book of maladies in the United States. And that book is simply called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, You can download a PDF copy from yourself. I downloaded mine, the fifth edition. It's there. It's right there. I want you to consider a couple of the maladies. Conduct disorder. The definition for conduct disorder is a persistent pattern of conduct in which the basic rights of others and major age-appropriate societal norm or rules are being violated. Oppositional defiant disorder, a pattern of negativistic, hostile and defiant behaviour. Histrionic personality disorder, a pervasive pattern of excessive emotionality and attention-seeking. Some would have called that narcissism. Antisocial personality disorder, a pattern of irresponsible and antisocial behaviour beginning in childhood or early adolescence and continuing into adulthood. I've got a PDF copy of the fifth edition and it actually has a history of the original manual going from 1840. The one in 1840 under the title Idiocy slash Insanity has this malady, Drapetomania. It's the inexplicable mad longing of a slave for freedom. So I guess from that alone, you should be able to recognise that these are man-made titles that fit the times. They are man-made titles that fit the times. So yes... Your sin might develop further. It may develop into some form of psychotic behaviour, some form of malady. But it's not the malady. The malady is sin. You could search the Bible for a hundred years. You will never ever find a single page or a single reference where an individual is not fully accountable for their behaviour. You will never find it in the scriptures. You'll never find it. But this is the world that wants to excuse the darkness. They want to excuse the darkness. We are living in a world without sinners, but one that's filled with mental disorders. The conscience that excuses the darkness will eventually self-destruct. Victimism is another one. And that's a really popular one today. Matter of fact, it seems to mark the times we're living in. Victimism excuses the darkness. Ever since my my children were little, I told them time and time again that you only become an adult when you begin to take responsibility for your actions. Let me say that in a different way. Every time you blame somebody else for a decision that you yourself has made, you are proclaiming loud and clear, I'm still a child. I'm still a child. That's what you were doing. Did you get that? You need to get that. You need to drum that really into your head because I'm telling you, there is a lot of 50-year-old, 15-year-olds out there. Okay? They are not adults. Every single time they blame somebody else from the position that they're in, they are scre- they're screaming out, I'm still a child. And they are victims. I can't help the situation. There's a lot of things that happen within our lives and I'm not... I'm not 
I'm not negating those things. Some of those things that happen within our lives are absolutely tragic. But you make the decisions from that point on. Did they have an effect upon your life? No doubt they had an effect upon your life. But I have read enough books and enough books of people who have succeeded incredibly in life and have undergone such traumatic experiences in their lives because they took responsibility for the decisions that they made from that point forward. The wonderful thing about it is the liberty that it provides you. But if you're only going to be a victim, you're never going to win. You're never going to win. The first victims of victimism are usually the parents, mum and dad, but most often dad. They're the typical scapegoats for the child's new disease. Not advocating every parent is necessarily a good parent. I'm not saying that. God's going to hold every single one of us accountable for our own sins. And I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy and I thank God that parents do not die for the sins of their children. And equally, I'm sure that the children are really happy that they don't die for the sins of the parents. Okay? God holds us all accountable for our own, for our own, our own sins. One author wrote about victimism. He said, victimism has so infected our culture that one might even say the victim has become the very symbol, the mascot of modern society. Blame shifting, says MacArthur in his book The Vanishing Conscience, blame shifting, making scapegoats of parents, childhood disappointments and other dysfunctions beyond their control. No matter what problem you suffer from, whether you are a cannibalising serial murderer or just someone struggling with emotional distress, you can easily find someone who will explain to you why your failing is not your fault and teach you how to silence that troubled conscience. But Paul wrote, it is high time to awake out of sleep. So, so how do we deal with this? I'm, I've given you the problem and I don't know how many of you have felt like that might apply to you. But how do we deal with it now? I mean, how do you, how do you wake up the conscience? How do you wake it up? Well, there's three that i found that are really clear in the Scriptures. All of them seem to wrap around King David. Wonderfully wrap around King David. The first is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The second is the conviction of the heart. And the third is the revelation of the Spirit. Let's have a look at those. We'll have a look at those quickly in this third point. The fear of the Lord. The phrase itself appears in the Bible 30 times. Interesting. All of them in the Old Testament, except for one in the book of Acts. We turn to David as our instructor. Have a look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34. These are important passages of scripture to turn to please do turn to them and consider them psalm 34 we'll read from verses 8 to 18 because i want you to see the nature of god in this but also i want you to see the heart of david this is david's psalm this is david's psalm have an understanding of what he refers to when he speaks about the fear of the lord because he mentions it several times But have a look at how he understands the Lord. Verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. 
Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are upon their, are, are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. The key is humility. The key is humility. The Lord is nigh those who are of a broken heart and of a contrite spirit. Humility is the key. This is the fear of the Lord. We come before a holy God and we desire above everything else to be pure in his eyes. We desire him more than we desire anything else. And we need our consciences clear. We want them woken up. There has to be a fear of God. And he's talking to the saints here. He's not talking about the lost. The lost don't have a consideration for God. They can care less about him. They say, depart from me. We, do not, we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. That's the lost. But the Christian has a fear of God, a genuine fear of the Lord. And those are seen as good in God's sight. There's another passage, the conviction of the heart. The conviction of the heart. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, another one with David. This is a historical reference. You remember this. David sinned. David had in his home a number of wives and he also had concubines. Nothing like his son Solomon, but he still had a number of them. Yet his eyes lighted on a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And in seeing Bathsheba, he didn't take his eyes from her. He desired her. He lusted after her. He took her, raped her, essentially, sent her back. And unfortunately, his sin would be discovered because she was now with what? With child. She was wed to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of the 30 mighty, the 30 mighty men that are referenced in the Scriptures. Uriah the Hittite was a mighty man of God, a mighty, valiant man. So David sent to receive Uriah the Hittite to come home. Just have a bit of rest. You're a good man. You're out there fighting. You're doing a really good job. Come home, rest, go home, lay with your wife, then go back. Looking to excuse his sin, he did this in an act of deception. So he bought Uriah, but Uriah the Hittite was a mighty man of God and greater than David at that time. Uriah would not go home to lay with his wife. Should I go and lay with my wife when all the people of Joab, all the, they're all sleeping in the open fields and I'm going to go and eat and drink and lay with my wife? No, no. Before God, I will not do this thing. I don't know how many of you would do that. So David got him drunk the next night as well, hoping that he'd do the same thing, but he still didn't. So David wrote his death warrant. He told Joab to set him at the first, at the front, at the hottest part of the battle, at the front of the battle, that he may die. Gave it to Uriah to bring it to Joab. 
So David brought his own death warrant as an honourable man. He didn't look at the contents. And David knew he wouldn't because he's an honourable man. He sent it to Joab and it was done as David desired. Now we have Nathan. Conviction of the heart. Conviction of the heart. Have a look at this. Second Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveller unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee to be king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too literal, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbour. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sins. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born unto thee. Uh, the, child, uh, the child also that is born unto thee shall, shall surely die. It was this event. It was this event. It was this event that prompted Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is based on this event. You'll notice a number of things. David did repent. Didn't change the consequences of his sin though, did it? Everything that the Lord had spoken came true. The neighbour was his third oldest son. The neighbour was his, one of his eldest sons. His son rebelled against him. His son came into Jerusalem. He gathered the concubines under a tent in the house of David and he had his way with them in the sight of all Jerusalem. And of course, enemies came against David. His own son became his enemy and his own son died as a result of it. We commit sins and it's a grief but you know we've got a conscience that is a pre-warning 
It's a pre-warning. It warns us, don't do this. Don't do this. What you're about to do is going to have consequences. And those consequences might last a heck of a lot longer than you think. One of the things that I've realised, that I've come to realise about sin, it takes you further than you want to go and it stays longer than you want it to stay. You know? That's one of the things that I've noticed about sin. And I'm, and I'm relatively well experienced. Your conscience warns first. It warns first. And when we listen to it, when we listen to it, when our desire is to have a clear conscience, then you have a blessed life. Yeah, all right, you might not get what you think you want to get at that time, but God has prepared something more wonderful for you because you have obeyed him, you've trusted him. So the conviction of the heart is a really important one. Nathan did it for David. Who's done it for you? If you're a child, chances are a parent has done it for you. You know, If you're a friend, chances are a best friend has done it for you. You know, If you're a member of a church congregation, we're encouraged to exhort one another daily. Daily. And it's not what... It's not... Jesus was the one that actually said you need to remove the plank out of your own eye, the beam out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's. So we can't be looking at ourselves more holier than thou. We've got our own grief to deal with. But when we see sin in somebody else, we bring it to them. And then they have to deal with it and their conscience will deal with it. The last one is, the last one that we have is, um, is, is what was it? This, the conviction of the, we've got the conviction of the spirit. The revelation of the spirit. The revelation of the spirit. You, you st- uh, turn to Psalm 139. It's just one verse. Just one verse there. Revelation of the Spirit, Psalm 139, verse 23. And it is a Psalm of David. Psalm 139, verse 23. This needs to be our heart before a holy God every single time we go before him in prayer. Every time we go before him in prayer, we pray this. We pray this. David recognised his own sin before and they were great sins. And they were easy to see. You're easy, easy to see the big ones. It's not the big ones that are often the concern. Psalm 139 verse 23, David simply says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Our prayer, our, our willingness to go... You, you, won't, you won't find yourself humble before God until you're willing to go on your knees and, and do it every day. Every day. Every day we need our hearts straightened out. Every day we need to pray. Every day we need to go before him and we need to lay our burdens before him. We need to ask him, and Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, bring it up. Bring it up to the surface that I may know it. Who have I hurt? Who have I said something just out of the slip of my mouth or the suddenness of my own heart that I need to repent of, that I need to seek their forgiveness for? Who have I hurt? Who have I affected? What have I done that's affected you? What have I done that wasn't pure in your eyes? What about my pride? Oh, cursed pride. You guys might not be affected by it, but I'm Italian. That's my malady. 
You know, pride, mate. It's the one thing that fights against humility all the time. It is the arch enemy. We have guilt that we need to deal with and we need to put it away. That he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, the Bible says. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Jesus came to save sinners, to save the guilty, not the righteous. He came to save the guilty, not the righteous. Those who think that they are without sin deceive themselves to their own hurt. Some to eternal damnation because they simply will not charge themselves with error. We feel guilty because we are guilty, says one author. Only the cross of Christ can answer sin in a way that frees us from our own shame. Psychology might mask some of the pain of our guilt. Self-esteem might sweep it under the rug for a time. Other things, such as seeking comfort in relationships or blaming our problems on someone else, might make us feel better. But the real relief is only superficial and it is dangerous. In fact, the author goes on to say, it often intensifies the guilt because it adds dishonesty and pride to the sin that originally wounded the conscience. True guilt has only one cause, and that is sin. Until sin is dealt with, the conscience will continually fight and accuse. It will continually fight to accuse. Sorry. A conscience clear. Last point this morning. The book of Acts the Apostle Paul is giving a testimony and he simply says this in Acts twenty four sixteen, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. This, beloved, is the aim. This is the aim. This is the manner in which we are to live free. Free and filled with joy for the balance of our days. Paul testifies to exercising himself with one goal focused on two ends. To have always a conscience void of offence towards God and toward men. And that is the key. That key is that humility that recognises when you have offended a person, you are to seek their forgiveness. When you have offended God, which if you've offended another person, you have offended God, you are to also go to the Lord. That is it. That's as simple as that. Guilt for sin to God and sin towards men will destroy us. It will destroy you. The moment your conscience is awake to sin you've committed toward God and man, seek forgiveness from both. Seek forgiveness from both and do so with all of your heart. The key is humility. The key is humility. The key is humility. key is humility. The key is humility. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm hoping it's going to drum it into your head that the key is humility. If you don't have humility, you have nothing. You have pride. And unless you are willing to be humble before a holy God and before even others, we are to see others as greater than ourselves. There was an individual who was running a camp. It was a, a camp that we used to all go to. Under his rule, 
And under his dominion of that camp, that camp fell apart. It died because of the stupid, prideful decisions that this individual made. And this individual lost for us a camp that we paid for with cash. We paid for it. Right? It was ours. It belonged to us. But then it ended up in debt. And it was all because this individual, a young man, who was set before them to do the work, was proud and he sought his own glory. As a result of that, we lost the camp completely. It would be different if this man had repented. It would be different if this man went to all the churches, to all the pastors, and literally fell on his knees before them and said, I really stuffed up. I really, really stuffed up. And he didn't do that at all. And he's still a very, very, very proud man. And it breaks our hearts because it was ours. It was, it was ours. It was a place that we could go to whenever we wanted to. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1.5 and see what it is to have a good conscience. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5. And we'll, get, we'll stay in Timothy for a little bit. 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul here speaking to Timothy, writing to Timothy. And he writes simply this in the fifth verse. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. A good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Remember the last passage that we studied? Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now he tells Timothy no contradiction whatsoever. And he adds to that which accompanies love that works no ill to his neighbour. Namely, charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. When you have an injured conscience, your faith struggles. You struggle in your faith. You struggle in your work before the Lord. You struggle to see God's work, his miracles and the things that he's doing on a daily basis. You struggle because your faith is feigned. It is affected because of Sin and because of a guilty conscience. There's so much more I can say on that one. But have a look at the 18th verse of the same chapter. 1 Timothy 1.18. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. How many Christians have made shipwreck of their faith because of a pure, poor conscience? How many of them that blaspheme their Lord by the manner of life, by a foul mouth, by their deceptions, by their lack of love towards their neighbour? How many have blasphemed Christ? They call themselves Christians... And yet at the very next word that comes out of their mouth betrays their hypocrisy. We need to be careful, beloved. I know, I know, stubbing your toe is not a fun thing to do. But you're not to blaspheme the Lord, you know. And especially not as a witness to others. Especially not as a witness to others. 
Well, you think he can get away with it. Oh, because, you know, we all still struggle with... No. No. You wound your own conscience before a holy God and you need to keep that conscience pure, pure, beautiful. Hold it before the Lord. Have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Two verses there. Paul writes, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. There is a, um, there is a way, there is a, a solvent that you can use on a seared conscience. Simple solvent. It, it dissolves. Searing a conscience, it's like, it's like, you know, you're welding it shut. You know, you're searing it. You've done it with an eye. You've burnt, you've, you've, you've completely, it no longer can, can bring, but there's a solvent. There's a solvent you can use. It's, it's, it's called humility. It's simply called humility. It's humbling yourself in your own sight. Stop seeing yourself as high as you like to see yourself. Start looking at yourself as who you actually are. Clear your conscience. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me, wash me truly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Nothing, nothing can make all your troubles go away quicker than a repentant heart, one that is broken, one that is contrite. Nothing, everything can go away. All troubles can go away when there is a heart that is humble before a holy God. Beloved, it is. You know, this is why Jesus came. He came and he died because of our sins. Because of our sins, he came and he died. He shed his blood on the cross that we might have forgiveness of sins. This is God manifest in the flesh. He came and he died for those who he came to save. They put him on the cross. We put him on the cross. It's, it's, it's our fault. They're blaming the Jews. It's not just the Jews. It's all of us. It's our sins that he came, that he paid for on that cross. But it takes the humility of a child to believe it. That's why children come to the Lord so quickly. You know, have to have a heart of a child before you will accept Christ because a child is humble. We are still so full of ourselves. But it's time, beloved, it's time. It's high time. It's high time to awake out of sleep. Because now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Maranatha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord. No, dear Father, to many of us, that was a difficult message, a difficult pill to swallow. Perhaps, dear Father, you can iron out my own deficiencies, dear Lord, within it but that you would exalt yourself, that you would show yourself merciful, a blessing, 
One, dear Lord, who we can come to knowing, dear Father, that you accept as the only sacrifice a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And I pray, dear Father, for each person here that they will in every way humble themselves before a wonderful and holy God who died to save them, died to redeem them, died to forgive them. I pray to your Father, you'll help us realise these things more important than anything else in our lives. Bless us, dear Father, this day and glorify your name through our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.